Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 181 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday afternoon, October 8th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I, I think I'm Steve Vladek. Uh, like him. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court? Is that is that this? Are you are you only used now to being online to talk to various levels of Supreme Court justice? Is that the deal? No, but it is, it is funny that I was on um, – I went from a Zoom – so I did this Zoom argument in the Texas Supreme Court on Tuesday. And then my next Zoom was like a um, reunion planning call for the for Amherst College for our 20th reunion next year. And it was like, you know, when you're on the Zoom with the Texas Supreme Court, it's like Chief Justice Hecht. When you're on the Zoom with um, parents of small kids who have been using their Zoom accounts for schooling, it's like, you know – Jonah's mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you you kept the uh, the different styles distinguished. We should note, dear listeners, that Steve has he's just off arguing to the Supreme Court of Texas and is on the verge of arguing to the Supreme Court of the United States. We'll have to have sort of a where is Steve arguing now segment later in the show to recap. <laughs> I, I think we'll be done. Go. I, 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 I'm looking forward to this time next week when when the answer is uh, only with Karen. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> nice, well, well played, sir. Uh, the, um, the 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 best part is the technological inversion. So the Supreme Court of Texas is Zoom, and it's like live video, and they put it up on the internet. It's a live stream video on the internet, and then there's the Supreme Court of the United States. And I, Bobby, I have spent more time than I care to admit in the last 24 hours trying to find somewhere in Austin where I can have a speakerphone that is not connected to voice over internet protocol, but is actually an old-fashioned landline. Interesting. God, you would think uh, the university would be filled with that, but I guess... You no. would like to think but that, we, wouldn't you? But like, actually, in fact, I have learned that there is not yeah, a single hardwired landline phone anywhere on the premises of the University of Texas School of Law. So did you find one? Eventually. Why is this necessary for the Supreme Court? So apparently the the I can't tell if the answer is because the US Supreme Court is using an incredibly sophisticated telephone conferencing system or an incredibly unsophisticated telephone right. conferencing system. But but here here are some terms for you. Um, voice over IP introduces two different sets of problems when you're trying to have a live simultaneous argument. The first is called latency, and here's my favorite. The second is called jitter. Yeah, that's that's evocative. That's fine. I'm not surprised by latency because isn't that the the, the classic cell phone time conversation tennis problem? But the real problem is jitter. And 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 I think by the way, I think we have an episode title. This podcast has plenty of jitter, um, right? But so so jitter is the way it works is just like any internet transaction. By the way, for folks who actually know what they're talking about, I'm about to sound really dumb. Um, but basically that we're sending data packets, right, over the internet. It's just right. that the data packets happen to be voice transmissions. Yeah. And jitter is when the packets are received in any different order than they were sent. And so you get sort of distortions that are not caused by any problems in the line. They're simply caused by the packets being received out of order. I love it. I love it. So they want to avoid all this and ensure the smoothest possible uh, transmission and communication at the Supreme Court. Yep. But you didn't have to go through those hoops. The Texas Supreme Court and it was on yep. Zoom. And was it a problem? Did you did you have the jitters or the latents? So I did. I did listen. I listened. I watched the argument. I listened to the argument. I, I did actually notice one or two jitters. But like compared to the ability to be able to see them and react to their body language and you know interact with them visually, not just orally, I I, I thought it was worth it. I, I will just say. 
you know, for all of this, this is all great. Then what? Then there's what happened yesterday to, to my friend Deepak Gupta, who's arguing for the respondents in the Ford Motor case in the U.S. Supreme Court, where just before it was his turn to go, his turn to go, his conference call system disconnected the line. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gupta, Mr. Gupta, was it like that? Were they all like? Bueller, Bueller, and he's not so, answering. So, the, so the chief played it off beautifully. The chief said, "You know, when they came, what they, they reestablished a connection quickly, and the chief came back online and he said, I just thought for a minute maybe you wanted to submit on your briefs.' Nice, um, oh, and, John. and so I, it, it worked out very well. But like, man, the, as if I didn't have enough anxiety about Tuesday. That's hilarious. All right, but yeah. enough about me. No, that's really funny. Um, I uh, I'm called to mind being in college and taking some class where it was a Supreme Court sort of class. And we were, my friend and I, my friend Chris Miller, we were each on opposite sides of a, of a death penalty case. And uh, he went first, and it's in front of all our classmates. We don't know what we're doing, but he gets up there at the podium to present his argument to the mock court. And he's brought his glass of water up there with him. It's not a flat podium, it's an angled podium. Uh oh. And he put it down. And he, I mean, immediately just went all the way over and flooded across all his papers and into, into his body. And he just looked up at me, and I've never laughed so hard in my life. That was it. That was a hilarious moment. I hope Chris is listening so he can relive that with me. Seriously. All right. What should we talk about today? How about we start with um, the flurry of interest in the 25th Amendment that, that God help us last Friday, uh, and then got a lot of attention for a day. And then apparently, I guess Speaker Pelosi just said something about how they're going to talk. They, I guess, meaning the congressional leadership are going to have something to say about this tomorrow. I I can't wait to explore that. What could that possibly be? Um, Secondly, we're going to turn to the uh, topic of terrorism. Um, And we have two very different yet very similar things to talk about. Um, An update on the so-called Beatles case, uh, Cote and El Sheikh um, in the United States at last, facing trial at last. And then we're going to say more than a few things about this unbelievable and horrific situation unfolding in Michigan, uh, the revelation of a plot to kidnap and, and as I read it, likely eventually kill uh, the governor, Governor Whitmer. And it's it's unbelievable and horrible, and it deserves a lot of attention. Uh, we'll pivot to Trumplandia, as always, with an update on various rule of law issues that are unfolding. And uh, I do think we should have a where is Steve arguing segment. Steve, what else should we cover? Um, uh, who, uh, how about a uh, recurring segment of, so wait, so who's the judge at the 9-11 trial? I mean, I, we did, we actually did cover that last time. Well, we don't know who the new judge is going to be. We just don't know there's going to be a new judge. But I mean, my God, man. Maybe um, we can get that as part of our terrorism segment. It actually fits there. Sure. Okay. Anything well, else? And, and, and indeed, and the contrast between the Beatles and the 9-11 case, I think, is is, is revealing. Yeah. Um, yes, it is. As, a, as someone said to me on Twitter yesterday, uh, what's the what's the what's the line on how many years will pass from when the conviction is delivered against uh, against Cote and El Sheikh versus when it's ever delivered against KSM, Ben Al Sheikh, and others? Um, I said it's going to be at least a year's gap that, that the Beatles prosecution will beat the 9-11 trial to verdict by at least a year. Oh, I'll double that. Yeah. We're probably both being too conservative. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think at least I, if the over under were two, I'd take the over. Should we just start in talking about this stuff? We're kind of halfway there. Yeah. So the Beatles. Okay. Um, 
Long-time listeners of the show know yeah, we'll, that- we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. We'll do 25th Amendment and presidential succession when we get to Trumplandia. Yeah, you're is, right, this, right. This is probably more bread and butter for us. That's right. That makes perfect sense. So the, the, the Beatles term, which a lot of people, including myself, hate seeing the, the, the amazing band's name dragged through the mud like this, but <laughs> it, is, it is the term that hostages use to describe um, the four, what they perceive to be British-accented uh, Islamic State guards and, and people who did more than just guard and they're telling uh, all kinds of horrors attributed to these guys involvement, including in the uh, the horrific abuse and killings of Americans. Um, they have been in SDF custody for a while. The holdup, as longtime listeners know, is that the United States, in order to make certain that we'll be able to convict them in criminal court, um, we've needed some evidence. We don't know what, but there's some evidence the British had the British could not transfer that evidence unless and until we took the death penalty off the table as a legal matter for them. We eventually took the death penalty off the table and uh, the British have now uh, done their part. As I, as I understand it, I, I believe they've agreed to transfer the evidence. Uh, they may have done so. And yesterday, El Sheikh and Cote were brought back to the United States and they are in the Eastern District of Virginia, probably being arraigned as we speak. Um, there's not a lot to say right now, legally speaking. This prosecution could be real run-of-the-mill as far as trial practice goes, or it could turn out to have all kinds of interesting issues, depending on what sort of evidence the government wants to put forward and what kind of uh, pretrial motions we might see out of the, out of the defense. I'm, I'm not really expecting any. It'll all be interesting and important. I'm not expecting anything particularly novel to come up, but we'll see. Um, it is striking... It's tempting to say, like, ah, look, the administration understood that it needed to use civilian criminal prosecution if it wanted to actually get a conviction. Um, we don't really know that they drew that conclusion because the evidence the British had could not be transferred to us unless he, unless these guys were being tried in a civilian American court. A military commission would have been a non-starter, just like the death penalty was a non-starter for the Brits. Um, that said, I never heard any talk or any serious suggestion that what the administration was going to try to do was to put them into Guantanamo in a military commission. And I think that speaks volumes for this administration to not even be seriously considering that as near as we can tell. Just shows you that no one, no one thinks at this point that the commission system is the right path to go. But but politically or otherwise, we seem unable to get off the treadmill. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, I love that point, Bobby. It is a stunning concession, um, even even if there were diplomatic reasons for it, right? Like even if part of why you never heard politicking and messaging out of the administration about the commissions was because they knew that would complicate the the discussions with the Brits, right? It's still stunning that there has been nary a word, even from folks outside of the administration who have been typically supportive of the commissions, suggesting that this case, that these cases properly belong there. I mean, I, you know, I have been incredibly outspoken in my criticism of the commissions and in my view that they have totally failed. But where is there a stronger piece of evidence for that than the silence from the, you know, very conservative national security community about community about trying these cases in the military commission? Bingo. I, I full, full agreement. Um, now, that's an excellent segue back to our observation earlier that, of course, here we are in 2020 and the 9-11 trial is still just sitting there, nothing happening. Day by day, it's increasingly scandalous. Let me repeat this. Day by day, it is increasingly 
scandalous that we have KSM, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, people really involved in the 9-11 plot. And we seem unable to grasp the nettle and recognize that the commission process, it, I think it's reasonably safe to say after what, how many years since capture, or at least since bringing them to Guantanamo, was that 2006, 2007? More than a decade later, we're yeah, still... Yeah, we're September still, we, 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 KSM was moved to Guantanamo in September of 2006. Yeah, okay. So we are 14 years down the road. This isn't working. The priority, it, it is time to rip the Band-Aid off of that and get this shifted over into a civilian criminal trial process, just like the Islamic State guys were just now talking about. It, it, it ought to be done, in my opinion. So I guess I mean so ended. So so question so question for you I mean the um, should should the elimination of the transfer restrictions be on the agenda for a Democratic Congress come January? Uh, I don't think so because of the political capital that as a realistic descriptive matter they would have to expend to do that would come at the cost of the unbelievable uh, shall I say the Herculean task of cleaning out the stables on rule of law issues that have arisen uh, over the past four years, there there are tremendously pressing concerns at the systemic level of the, yeah. the health and strength of, of the country and its government structure right now. And I, I prefer, you know, you can only, you can only pursue so many priorities and ha- taking on the issue that I'd love to see them take on, but it, all things being equal, I just think that'd be a bad investment of their capital. Um, of course, there's another path too. What about, um, what about, Transferring these guys into a court martial proceeding. Um, I mean, whew, talk about a cluster and a half. You know, it, it just opens up more of the same issues. I mean, it's at least a regularly constituted court in a more traditional sense. Yeah, I just, I mean, you know, it doesn't solve the military judge problems we've seen, right? You go back to some of the evidentiary issues that motivated the commissions in the first place. I just, it is such a cluster to have, and you know, the the lack of any effort for like looking for like you know. Um, a dignified exit strategy at this point. It's just, it is, I mean, I, I just, you know, I feel so horrible for, you know, the victims who want any semblance of closure that yeah. they've just been completely and utterly betrayed by this process. Yep. Um, you know, the fact that the Eastern District of Virginia apparently can safely and effectively handle some Islamic State fighters directly involve American American blood on their hands. Um I think, they, I think the Eastern District of Virginia can also handle, could always have handled uh, these. You know, I, I say all this not backing away in, for an instant from my position that, in theory, there, there's nothing inherently wrong with using military commissions in the context of armed conflict, where you have credible claims of war crime violations. Um, but the, the proof's in the pudding about the military commission option here. It's just not working. Uh, and that's been clear for more than a decade. So it's kind of silly that we're talking about it. And yet we must. Yep. All right. Um, shall we pivot to domestic terrorism? Yeah. I mean, I, I have to say, when I saw this headline come in, um, I was, I, you know, it's funny. I was partly just stunned, Bobby, and partly so not surprised. Um, but so the the story is, right, that the FBI uncovered a plot um, by uh, members of a group called the Michigan Militia, a right wing, what you know, extremist white supremacist group. Um, to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm floored by. I mean, I guess I'm floored by this, and I'm not floored by this. 
you know, going back to uh, the 2016 election campaign, when there were these moments where candidate Trump was expressly encouraging what you might describe as petty physical violence, except it's never petty to the person receiving the violence. But nonetheless, sort of, you know, oh, that that guy's getting thrown out of our rally. You know, so they ought to beat him up. That's sort of the wink, wink, nod, nod towards petty political violence in that sort of disorganized, more ad hoc sense. Uh, you and I and others really decried this at the time as inviting um, a, a little thin wedge of violence into the political process and how disturbing that was. Um, right now in the current environment, there's a grave risk that we're going to begin to see more and more organized forms of actually planning and carrying out attacks in, in violence in a sense that looks more orchestrated than what happens and has happened many times in the context of protest, I fully recognize, um, and has been organized some in that sense. But, but something like this, where a group trains militarily, arms themselves, works on developing, uh, refining the art of creating improvised explosive devices, conducts tactical reconnaissance of a government figure's home. And let's be clear about, to me, the most horrific part of this, they weren't just planning, they weren't just planning to kidnap the governor. The idea as described in the affidavit of the FBI agent that was released, and, and this isn't characterization, these are quotes from recorded conversations made possible by confidential informants and so forth. Um, the plan was to try to get Governor Whitmer get her to some secure location they apparently had in mind in Wisconsin, conduct a show trial, and then combine with other things that these people recorded saying, surely the implication was they were going to execute her. This is a nightmare to have that introduced, even the possibility of this into American politics. Um, and yes, I recognize there's there's always a lunatic fringe that, that has all sorts of ideas of a, of a like kind. It's the level of organization and the larger context that suggests that this isn't just a one-off flash in the pan that's not going to re repeat itself, but the possibility that this is uh, a warning sign that we have right now of where our politics might go as we get increasingly violent in our political rhetoric with the president leading the charge in that respect. I mean, he tweeted, liberate Michigan. Yeah, when people were at armed going to the, the Michigan Capitol. Right. Yeah. It's deeply disturbing. It is. Let's be clear. Wait, about but, but like, there, there's one other piece of this I want that I think has to be mentioned, which is, you know, some of the folks who are not some of the folks who are, if not defending this, at least saying it's not the horrible thing you think it is, are pointing to the decision by the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, what last week? Right. So last there's this very controversial decision by the Michigan Supreme Court last week where the court on a four to three vote, um, an opinion that. I think, Bobby, if you read it, we'd have another experience like the Pennsylvania one. Um, but an opinion that struck down some of Whitmer's, um, you know, COVID emergency measures. Um, and there are folks out there saying this is justified because of that decision. And I just, I mean, you know, not, no, not only no, but like no times a billion, like a state Supreme Court holding that a governor exceeded her authority is not a license to remove her by force. It is it is the rule of law actually working the way it's supposed to, even if the court gets it wrong. I'm, I'm almost afraid to go looking for examples of what you're talking about. I have no doubt they're out there. Anyone who would defend this in any way 
is making a horrible, horrible mistake and is part of the problem that I'm identifying. Is so 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 when so when the president and his supporters don't come out and condemn this. It clearly must be condemned. Well it's inexcusable not to condemn it. Now, not condemning Stand I, by. Stand back and stand by. Well, right. Stand back and stand by, exactly. Um I I'll be this is this kind of connects up with the debate issue, right? Because they're supposed to be debating soon, and now Trump says he doesn't want to debate virtually, so now we might not get the debate. I'm sure it has um, nothing to do with the fact that he actually like has coughing fits every five minutes from COVID. But hey, if uh, do we actually have any like? I mean, I'm sure that's probably the truth. But do we actually have any uh, witness testimony or accounts about that? No, but the videos they keep putting out, like these propaganda, you know, these propaganda tropes that we keep getting on his Twitter account. Um, you can tell that they're badly edited, and you can you can see where they actually like cut and then like you know retake and like restart the take. And so the assumption out there is that it's to cover up like coughing fits. But I don't know. I mean, I'm speculating. Well, well, the, the bottom line is though, it, it is a great shame that that there cannot be another attempt to say, "Will you now? It, can you can you bring yourself to condemn at least this?" You wonder what he might say. Um, everyone needs to condemn it. There is no place in there's no place in anyone's politics for this sort of thing or anything remotely like it. And it does not matter in these slightest what the alleged uh, ex- overextension of the governor's emergency power may or may not have occurred in that case. Um, it's, and it's all the worse the fact that the Michigan Supreme Court did rule based on Michigan law that the governor had exceeded her authority with some of her emergency orders. All right. That's, that's how the process is supposed to work. That may or may not have been the right ruling by the court, but it's the legal process. That's what's at stake here. Ultimately is, are we ruled by the legal system, by the rule of law and legal institutions doing their best to implement it, even when we don't always agree. And are we willing to live with when our side loses a given point? And when the answer is no, when the answer is, this is not a democracy, as Senator Lee inexplicably tweeted uh, yesterday or the day before. When the answer is, you know, there's some good people that just feel the need to take up arms, um, then something is deeply wrong in the body politic. And it's incumbent on everyone to denounce it. Violence has no place. Not I, just, I mean, if the... I go back and forth between being very nervous about what the next three and a half weeks are going to look like and being cautiously optimistic. And shit like this doesn't help. So shall we journey to Trumplandia, our next topics? Yeah, if we make it through three and a half weeks, I guess is the segue, right? I, you know, I am I am an optimist at heart. And I think that I, I don't think this portends that we're about to have this civil war that some of these same lunatics want to have. Um, but it is... Re- Required that everyone on both sides of the aisle loudly denounce this sort of thing, lest people who are inclined to such lunacy are encouraged by silence to think that maybe there are people in power who actually think, yeah, this is kind of okay. That's that to me is the thing that really matters. Okay. Um, in Trump Landia, we have a, uh, uh, check in with one of our recurring storylines, which is the attempt by the DA in New York City, uh, Cy Vance Jr. to is a junior. Did I get that right? Yeah, to get Trump's taxes. Uh, the Second Circuit, as we predicted, is not going to stand in, what, in the way of that. Anything interesting to say there about the ruling? As expected. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the only interesting thing is the timing. I mean, so Trump and Vance had agreed to a super accelerated timetable for cert um, and for a stay application. And so we might, you know, we might know some stuff. That we might go pretty quickly at this point to a um, to a cert petition, a stay application, and a denial of a stay from the court. Um, you know, I, that doesn't mean we're going to know anything before the election or before November right. 3rd, but Right. But but it does. I mean, I think the end of this case is closer rather than further away. Is there reason to think there's anything in these documents that's not part of the trove that The New York Times has been reporting on? Yes. Yes. Uh, um, So so these subpoenas are broader than what we think The Times has. These subpoenas are for a whole bunch of corporate financial records that go beyond tax returns. Would they Um, potentially show who the president owes a half a billion dollars to? Maybe, right? I mean, or at least, you know, there might be more information on what some of these shadowy LLCs are and who they're held by, but also to the notion that the real sort of crux of this investigation is a defraud by the Trump organization. You know, it's possible that the best evidence of that is not in the tax returns, but in rather the corporate documents. Interesting. All right. So so that will proceed to pace. As we've said all along, that was unlikely to, to produce anything that would be visible to the public prior to the election. And that seems increasingly likely to be the case. Um, is that it for Trumplandia? There must be something else. I mean, there's so much, but like, I just, I can't stomach almost any of it. Um, with the Flynn prosecution or not prosecution. So they're back in, they're back before judge Sullivan. And now, um, uh, Michael Flynn's lawyer's new gambit is to try to get Sullivan to recuse. And my favorite part was that the exhibit she attached as proof of his bias were a bunch of tweets from anonymous, crazy Flynn supporters that like, you know, his bias is proved by the fact. He's biased. Yes, exactly. Look, look at look at how many pe- look at how many Russian bots say that say that Judge Sullivan is biased. <laughs> That's pretty wild. Um, all right, what about? But 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 speaking of Trumplandia, I mean, and then there's the fact that the president appears to have this highly con- contagious disease that you know at one point on Friday had his vitals in sufficient jeopardy that they medevaced him to Walter Reed. All right. So Other than that, though. <laughs> so uh, it, where he got he got care at a pace and intensity and of a quality and kind that almost no one else is is going to be able but, to get. No, wait, Bobby, what do you mean? Didn't you watch his video? No. Wait, what do you mean? No, no one else no. is going to be able to get it. He promised that he promised that Regeneron is going to be available to everyone for free. Oh, of course, sure. Just as you know, right? Sure. Never mind, of course, that Regeneron's name in the company, not the anti, not the you know antibody clonal therapy, but whatever. Um, I also the irony of all of this is that I don't know if anyone realizes that the therapy the president received was derived from fetal stem cells. Yeah, that's getting lots of media attention in the past few hours. I think that uh, yeah, that probably won't make any dent on anyone's uh, agenda. It actually is very promising that this tech is out there. My understanding is that it was only a couple of days before that there began to be public reporting about the, uh, I think it was stage three positive results that Regeneron's uh, therapeutic, these, as I understand it, they're artificially uh, created antigens. So you don't have to beat the body to produce them. You can just directly inject these. Uh, That's remarkable. That actually sounds like great news. Uh, I hope that actually works and and can become an even even further step towards having the kind of therapeutics to turn this away from being for 4% of the population who get it, a death sentence, uh, and into something that is perhaps more manageable. I think people need to remember, though, that death isn't the only consideration. That's not the only reason you don't want COVID. Uh, COVID-19 
seems to leave many, many, many of the people that survive it with potentially permanent, certainly lasting, really significant impairments. And that, that needs to be part of this conversation. And not just respiratory, but cardiac. Right. No, the heart, the heart uh, damage that I think the, the heart stuff, I mean, the, the heart stuff the is the skin study that documented. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the scary part of this. But I mean, just the, so, so there's so many things, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like the last week is like the perfect encapsulation of everything that's wrong with Trump. Like, oh, finally he gets it and now he understands. But his reaction is, well, as long as, as long as I can get better, everyone, everyone will get better and right, it doesn't I, matter and blah, I, blah, I blah, it, blah, blah. It's been the worst, the worst reaction one could possibly have. You know, when Boris Johnson got it, he came out of it on this issue, quite a changed man, saying much more responsible and empathetic things about the the dangers and the suffering people are going through. And whatever one thinks of Boris Johnson, my, my distant, from a distance impression is that he actually came out of this the way you'd expect a statesman to come out of this. Um, Trump's come out of this uh, with braggadocio, of course, um, acting as if he somehow, you know, kicked it through his naturally strong constitution instead of these unbelievably aggressive combinations of interventions that were done just for him because he's president and aren't really available to most people. And then he acts as if, hey, see, it's okay. Don't need to be scared of it because you'll be fine. What a, what a freaking ridiculous message to send to people who are not going to get Regeneron. Wait, wait, they- wait. But forget, forget Regeneron. Meanwhile, the White House is refusing to contact Trace from the September 26th Rose Garden event, the White House is not letting individuals who have become infected in the White House tell anyone that they've become infected. I mean, like, they're lit- we are literally seeing the implementation of the if you don't test, there won't be more cases as policy, and it is an absolute train wreck dumpster fire. <sighs> so 25th Amendment came up in the context of all of this. <laughs> you know, so about I, that. I woke up on Friday morning, heard the news about the president, and walked in to teach my 9.30 in the morning constitutional law class to my first year students. And I thought, you know, we should probably pause and spend a few minutes going over the 25th Amendment because who knows what's going to happen today. And then it was so bizarre to see uh, how much attention the 25th was getting. There, every, every news segment all afternoon and evening long that day had to have a little breakdown. Um, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, we can do a quick overview here. I'm not sure what else there really is to say about it. The the thing that matters is involuntary declaration of the president's incapacity. Well, can, we, can, we, can we just back up a second and just do this really quickly all the way through? Yeah, so, so the context, why did we need it? Right. So the constitution deals with what happens in cases of presidential death or resignation or removal, right? And it's clear that in a case of, of death, resignation, or removal, the president, the vice president ascends to the office. Um, what the constitution does not speak to is cases of incapacity. Um, and it also doesn't provide a mechanism for picking a new vice president, right? And so the two things that the 25th Amendment really tried to address were a mechanism for appointing a new vice president in a circumstance in which the vice president dies or, or resigns, right? Or in which the vice president ascends to the presidency. And also circumstances where the president was not dead and had not been removed, but was unable to discharge the duties of his office. Um, and so sections one and two are focused on the sort of what we do in cases of presidential 
you know, departure. Sort of the section, Gerald Ford rules. Yes, yes. Um, section three is voluntary temporary transfer of power, right? That in circumstances in which the president is unable, right, is disabled, um, right, he can sign a letter temporarily transferring power to the vice president um, for as long as it takes for the president to sign another letter. And while that, while the first letter is in effect, the vice president is the acting president with all the powers that, that, that connotates. And this is interesting sort of Amy Coney Barrett side note is not the president of the Senate. Um, Article one, section three is actually quite clear that the pres that the vice president is not the presiding officer of the Senate when he's exercising the duties of the president. Who is um, the presiding officer in that moment? The president pro tempore, Chuck Grassley. Yeah. yeah. Yay. All right. Um, who does not get to vote twice. And so it's actually, so, so in a scenario in which you had a tie, when the when the vice president was serving as acting president, there'd be no mechanism for breaking the tie. Um, um, this is I, that I mean that this is where we were on Friday afternoon is about how is a testimony to how wacky Friday was. And this has been used in, in you know when George W. Bush was president a couple of times I believe he went under for colonoscopies and in both instances he executed a document uh, invoking this provision uh, right so that. Cheney had the acting presidency function during the times of the surgery until he woke up again. Then it was over. This is this has been used a fair amount. What what gets interesting is the possibility that the president isn't up for signing such a document. Either doesn't agree that he is about to be incapacitated or has already been incapacitated and didn't sign it in advance. So then, so then we get to right the sort of section four scenario. Um, which is the president is either unable or unwilling to sign a letter temporarily transferring power to the vice president. Ah, and the then other, the other unwilling, unable or unwilling doctrine. Indeed. And that's when things get wacky. Um, and so the way it works is upon a letter sent by the vice president and a majority of the cabinet, the president is temporarily removed and the vice, and the vice president becomes the acting president unless the president responds and says, no, I'm good. And then it goes to Congress. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, well, but only if the vice president repeats process to right, ask right. the Congress to say, so, well, so we have a disagreement right. here, my friends. So if the president doubles down and there becomes a dispute about whether the president is, in fact, no longer able to discharge the duties of his office, it goes to Congress where you then need the same vote that you would need for, you know, for actually you need a greater vote because the house, you need two thirds of two both thirds. houses. Yeah. Right. Which is, you know, two thirds of the Senate. That's the same to remove the president. But now you need two thirds of the House. And so yeah, it's pretty tough. You. You are, if it, if it, if it's at all closely contested, it's unlikely that the the insurgent vice president and cabinet are going to be able to topple the president. Um, but I mean, it makes for great you know great plot lines in books and and TV shows. Absolutely. Um, and indeed, this is actually so so this, a, a quick little sort of random uh, um, story. So uh, West Wing, right? When it was on originally, um, at the end of season four. Spoiler alert coming, everybody, if you haven't watched yeah. season four of The West Wing. Um, there's an ep the, the season finale of West Wing season four, the episode title is 25. <laughs> um, and and the second they flashed that at the beginning of the episode, I called my sister because we would talk during the commercials, back in the time when we watched commercials because we didn't have DVRs. And I said, oh, my God, Liz, there's no vice president. <laughs> because at the end of the previous episode, Hoynes had resigned, right? And so, you know... The, they flash 25. I'm like, well, 25. The 25th Amendment. There's no vice president. I know where this is going. 
Too bad you didn't wager something in the in the seriously. Show. Uh, anyway, so all this is to say that like there's a mechanism for it. Um, of course, in the scenario where both the president and the vice president are incapacitated, disabled, we get into the terms of the Presidential Succession Act of 1947 and the debate, which which puts which unambiguously puts the Speaker of the House third behind the president and the vice president, but about which there is some yeah. debate. Right. As to constitutionality, about whether you can have legislative officers in the line of succession. Right. So there, there's the constitutional question, which I think is a serious one. And then I don't. The, and then, and I, then don't. I, 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 I want to be on record. I don't. Right. That's fine. And then there's just like the, the wisdom, like, but why pick the speaker, right? Why, why not just have it go through the cabinet? So uh, here's my here's my policy argument, right, which is um, no member of the cabinet was elected. Right. Um, and indeed, um, it's entirely possible that a mem- that the, that that the the secretary of state, for example, who would be first because the cabinet's in order of the age of the of the department. Right. Um, the, the secretary of state was confirmed, say, by a 51 49 vote in the Senate. Right. Representing well under a majority of the country. And so just from the pure. Now, it's true that the speaker is only elected by one district, but right. he or she is made speaker. Right. By a majority of the representatives of the more democratic house. Um, And so I, you know, to me, it is much more democratically accountable to have the speaker of the house and indeed the speaker over the pres pro tem of the Senate than any cabinet officer. Why not then say, all right, it's going to be the speaker or ranking member um, of whichever party is the president's party, because it's. I mean, if what we care about here is democratic accountability and tracing back to democratic pedigree, to intra term have party control of the White House shift because of incapacity, that strikes me as problematic. I, it, it just seems like it Why? might be. Wait, but, but the, wait, but the original Constitution contemplate. I mean, yes, the founders didn't contemplate parties, but the Constitution was designed in a way where it was entirely possible that the president would be succeeded by his rival, right? Because the under the original Constitution, the vice president was the runner up. And then and we so, changed it precisely because of the mess that that was. So, so now so we you, have a system so, where the succession clearly goes to the president's own running mate. I, so, okay, I think it okay, makes so, more sense to just keep it within the same party. So you think the Presidential Succession Act violates the 12th Amendment? I didn't say it was unconstitutional. We're talking about what, what the right solution is, assuming you could yeah. pick whatever you want. But, but, but the, problem is, the problem is this, right? The problem is that the you know the se- the secretary of state is not elected the secretary of state would then be allowed to serve up to the end of the current president's term right and so you'd have a scenario where someone who nobody elected right was given perhaps as much as 4 years as president when you have elected members of the house and the senate you know who would be much more representative so listen i understand that this means that there could be circumstances where the result of vacancies in both the house of the president and the vice president lead to a party switch um that's never happened in American history. Um, and I just think that, like, I prefer the democratic accountability to it, to the specter. Of, I mean, you know, if if look at it this way, if Trump and Pence both become incapacitated by COVID. Right. I think Speaker Pelosi has a much stronger claim to popular support than Secretary Pompeo. I think, though, so if if you're right about the greater democratic legitimacy, and I think it's, it's all kind of debatable because it's. Very, it's very narrow in in both cases. It may be stronger with the speaker than the secretary, but either way, why not have it both ways and have the enhanced democratic legitimacy of someone who did run for office, did get elected, and did rise to the leadership position of their party in the House, 
but but just keep it within the same party. That just seems to be the way to thread the needle. But then again, uh, no one. I, mean, I, just think that, I, just, I just think that hardwires party divisions like that. That makes sense in the like that makes you know practical sense in the current moment, right? Of our sort of divisive partisanship. But like there are moments in American history where that would have made very little sense. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. We got to go back too far. Well, anyways, no one's gonna no one's gonna tinker with the statue anytime soon. But it is Fair something enough. that lies out there waiting for people to write books about them. Right, make movies about them, and I guess. Well, uh, so so the the book is written. So if you guys really want to go down this rabbit hole, um, the book to read on the subject is by a guy, a friend of mine at Michigan State named Brian Colt. Um, and Brian's book, um, wait, I want to find the the I want to get the title right. Um, Brian literally has a book on the Twenty Fifth Amendment, and it's called Unable: um, The Law, Politics, and Limits of Section Four of the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Um, and it's, uh, it's a steal on Amazon for 26 bucks. Awesome. That's holiday cool. reading. Now I um, go to office hours with my students pretty soon. So we should wrap up with, uh, first of all, I, I want to hear you're arguing at the Supreme court next week, Briggs, next right? T- Tuesday morning at nine central. You can, you, um, there, not like there's a Supreme court confirmation here and they'll be going on across the street, diverting attention a little bit. But if you really are a glutton, um, C-SPAN will be streaming the audio live, on, at least on its website, um, starting at 9 o'clock Central. That's awesome. Well, good luck. Um, Thank you. It's going to be really weird. To, I, not your first experience with this, I guess, but to argue <sighs> in the court and then like walk out into your backyard. Basically. I mean, I'm actually doing this at a law firm downtown, but yes, like argue at the Supreme Court and like walk out to the elevator and like come to my office. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, that was great. But also, but also like, I mean, we've all sat in front of a speakerphone on conference calls, right? I, I just, the, the sitting in front of a speakerphone on a conference call where the people you're talking to are the justices of the Supreme Court and where the conference call is an oral argument. I, I, the surreality of that is going to be very, very hard to get over. Well, should we should we throw in some last minute frivolity here? We didn't plan it. Yeah. Have you watched, uh, read, or done anything frivolous last week? Um, Karen and I have been watching the HBO series The Vow about Nexium, um, which is really creepy. It's really really creepy. It's a documentary about this. I think I can say cult um, in in upstate New York. Um, we're, we're, we're almost caught up, but it's, it's, it's quite creepy. Um, and I've been, my, 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 my pleasure reading has been, um, Ian Kershaw's The End <laughs> about, about, um, about the, the sort of the last couple of months of Nazi Germany and why there was such fanatical continuing devotion to Nazism, even as it was abundantly clear oh. that it was a doomed enterprise. That's super interesting. Well, you've obviously been doing some uplifting, uh, in time. <laughs> Can I offer an antidote to all that? If you, have, if you have not watched it, you must watch Ted Lasso. <laughs> Jason Sudeikis uh, show on Apple TV. I, a few people had said to me like, hey, you really ought to watch this. It's just going to make you feel good. Um, it is amazing. It is so enjoyable. And it's a, it's a perfect tonic for these ugly times. Because the the whole identity of the character is is to be uplifting, um, and it's just darn funny and really clever. And I know you, I know you like uh, sort of I know you like English Premier League. Uh, I think you'll find that layer of it to be especially funny. You know the plot? Right. Right? No. Oh, I'm sorry. I just assumed you knew. Sudeikis plays Ted Lasso, a big bushy mustache American heartland guy. I think from Kansas City, who's a football coach. 
not not English football, American football coach. And for reasons that only come out later, uh, but you might be able to figure out uh, a struggling uh, English soccer club hires him to be the new manager and uh, to be the new coach. And it's a seems like a train wreck, a classic clash of cultures. But he brings his gee whiz, can do apple pie attitude and hilarity ensues. Um, you just got to watch it. It's really okay. great. Right up your alley. I, I, I can see. I can see where this is going, and I and I I, I see humor in the future. It's got a lot. Of, it's like a. It's a little bit major league, definitely. Major league meets bend it like Beckham. Like oh my that. gosh! Did you see? Wait. So did you see that Trump released this letter? You know, so you know how there are all these letters about like Republican national security officials like in publicly endorsing Trump, right? Well, did you yeah, see that? What, yeah, of course. The there's the 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 long list of all the most distinguished Republican national security figures. Um, including people like our friends Matt Waxman and John Bellinger, uh, endorsing Biden as like normally no, but this time yeah, right. for national security reasons. So you see that Trump put out a list? I glanced over it, didn't recognize a lot of names. So I, I, I came up, I have responded to that list with what I thought was the greatest tweet of my life, which was the quote from, which was the dialogue from Major League when they're up in the office before the season, figuring out who they're inviting to camp. Right? Oh and, and Rachel, Rachel walks in and hands out the list and the scouts and the executives are like, I never heard of half these guys. And the ones I have heard of are way past their prime. This guy never had a prime. This guy here is dead. Cross him <laughs> off then. And I was like, this is exactly this list. Oh my like, all it's missing is someone who was actually dead. Oh, my God. I I missed that. So I usually see most of your tweets. That sounds like a gem. Well, I'm just saying it. On point use of major league is, is like like the, the 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 parallel and and I just I I you know the, there were a few people who got it but I feel like it really went over a lot of people's heads which I think says that we just don't know major we we have not internalized major the league. genius that is major league to the extent that we should have you know it's one of Tom Berenger's finest roles we might have to do a Tom Berenger segment by the way next week on great Tom, Ooh, Tom Berenger movies that's there because so, they're they're varied and some of them are okay really okay. Good. Okay, you have identified, my friend, a brilliant frivolity topic for next week, which is best and top five best and top five worst Tom Berenger roles. Listeners, get in on that. And can General Longstreet be on both of those lists? Oh, oh this is going to be great. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. All right, there, there's your marching orders. That was a good show for one we didn't really plan. More so than usual. <laughs> you're, not, you're not supposed to tell them that we haven't planned the thing that we just recorded and that they're listening to. That actually just goes to show the wisdom of that because there was zero planning and it was just like all the other shows. Well, we I mean, you may feel that way and I may feel that way, but I have no idea if our listeners feel that way. <laughs> they're still here. I'm punchy, man. This is this is not good. Let me let me go back to to figuring out how I answer questions in less than three minutes. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna need to do that. All right. All right. He is at Bobby Chaz, I'm at Sim underscore Vladic. We are at uh NSL Podcast, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh stay safe out there and try to avoid the jitter. Adios.